Warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and physical mutilation, which some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Let me take you back over 800 years to the 13th century, to Weagorinchester, or Worcester as we know it today, and recount a tale of lust, repentance, jealousy, and redemption. Weagorin is Old English, meaning the people of the winding river, and Chester being a Saxon suffix derived from the Latin chestrum, meaning encampment or settlement, usually given to larger towns and cities which bore the ruinous traces of Roman occupation. The place of the people of the winding river was a largely single-storied timber-framed city overlooked by a modest Norman castle and a Benedictine cathedral which loomed large in the lives and minds of its almost 2,000 inhabitants by the early 1200s. A sizeable citizenry for the time whose economy was mainly concerned with the manufacture of woolen cloth and leather goods. A host of other trades and occupations existed within the area, but no matter how many hours the good lord sent, he still left time for thoughts and hands to wander. A few miles downstream, in the sleepy hamlet of Tyerley, a man named Estma is doing the best he can for his family, toiling as a peasant sheep farmer in the rolling fields of the Gloucestershire countryside. Keen to secure a much brighter future for his son Thomas, the boy was sent off to London and the household of Geoffrey Fitzpeter, first Earl of Essex, Chief Justice of England and King Richard's right-hand man in whose employ he worked for a number of years until, having saved enough money to purchase a sizeable farmstead, returned nearer home to Eldersfield, a village some 11 miles south of Worcester as the crow flies, halfway between the port town of Tewkesbury and the southern tip of the Malvern Hills. Now a man of means, and exuding the confidence that comes with youth and worldly experience, Thomas came to the attention of many local women, not least Lady Northway, wife to the lord of his father's manor. In the beginning, their alliance was strictly business, but as time went on, their trysts developed into a full-blown adulterous affair. Two summers came and went until Thomas confessed his misbehaviour to a priest who duly prescribed his penance, and the fling, at least in his mind, was forgotten. Lady Northway's infatuation was insatiable, however, and it soon became clear that she wasn't going to take no for an answer even proposing marriage upon Robert, Lord Northway's death. 
Ecclesiastical law absolutely forbade the marriage of people who had knowledge of each other in adultery, but this was of no consequence. Thomas was no longer interested. Spurned, her love quickly turned to hatred of the man she had once taken into her marital bed, and growing tired of widowhood, soon found and wed a replacement, George, the new lord of Northway. Within the local community, their dalliance was an open secret. George, as we shall see, was a small, jealous and petty man who became fixated on the relationship, perhaps a Freudian reflection of what he kept in his breeches. Tension spilled over outside the alehouse on Sunday the 7th of May 1217. After having spent the entire day at the pub celebrating the Holy Feast of Whitson, Thomas decided he was ready to hit the hay and began to stumble home. George, who had been sat brooding in the corner and had taken his equal share of beer, spotted an opportunity for mischief and slipped out behind him, and, rearing his walking staff, continued to strike Thomas in the back of the head, following it up with a mouthful of slurred abuse. Not looking for any trouble, a wobbly Tom suggested George calm down and back off, at which point he received another whack to the left shoulder. Our man of Eldersfield, growing frustrated by the unwarranted aggression, quickly drew a small hatchet from his belt and motioned with it to keep his attacker at bay. Sporting a strong pair of beer goggles upset his usually dexterous coordination, overshooting George's right shoulder, making contact with the handle before the heel of the blade nicked the skin as the weapon was withdrawn. The injured assailant then hopped a fence and ran off screaming, declaring he had been unfairly set upon and a victim of a breach of the king's peace pointing a cowardly finger back in Thomas's direction. Arriving back at Northway Manor, he embellished his ruse even further by raising what was known as a hue and cry, an archaic practice even then that involved sounding a horn to rally the dutiful townsfolk of four nearby parishes who were expected to come to their master's aid, a medieval mix of burglar alarm, neighbourhood watch scheme and bat signal. Fines would be levied for those who failed to show up, although no one took it too seriously, over the years, this exercise had degraded into an occasional stealth tax headed for royal coffers. By now, George's Oscar-winning performance had drawn quite a crowd, and the storyline had also been amended. According to him, Thomas had broken into the manor house, armed with an axe, intent on turning the place over, and, expecting the household to be away enjoying the festivities, was startled to discover his lordship within. A scuffle ensued, and George came off worse the poor man assaulted in his own home. Sensing a change in the atmosphere, Thomas decided to beat a hasty retreat, fording back over the river to the safety of his own house. A short while afterwards, Estma, Thomas's now elderly father, arrived answering the community call-out, unaware of what had transpired, whereupon he was apprehended by the mob, charged with being an accessory to his son's concocted crimes, and remained in jail at the pleasure of the Sheriff of Gloucester until bail could be procured. For a number of weeks thereafter, Thomas was also subjected to numerous false arrests and trumped-up charges instigated by the Northways, a vindictive attempt to deplete his finances and cause maximum embarrassment by forcing him to seek favours from the noble families who populated his address book. Four years later, in early July 1221, the case against him was finally brought before a sentence of itinerant judges at the Gloucester County Air. Travelling courts such as these were necessary to administer justice across the sparsely populated country where no purpose-built courthouses existed. 
Although never claiming to have received a blow to the head, it appears as though George became afflicted by acute selective amnesia during those intervening years, most likely because he knew he was unable to prove the housebreaking yarn he'd spun and would rather not risk committing perjury, brushing off the literal song and dance he had made at the time. His appeal to the court now rested on the assertion that he had been maimed at Thomas's hands and had been left incapable of defending himself ever since. Where there was blame, there was a claim. Thomas refuted every word spoken against him, but as in most neighbourly feuds, it was fast becoming a case of his word against theirs. A mere ten years earlier, he could have been subjected to the ordeal of the hot iron, which would have involved being forced to clutch the glowing end of a metal bar fresh from the furnace and walking five steady paces before dropping the rod in agony. If the resulting third-degree burns healed up nicely, he was innocent. A festering wound was indicative of guilt. This formerly pagan practice had been removed from the statutes by papal edict at the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. A fact Lord Northway may not have been aware of, expecting this sort of old-fashioned recourse to his private prosecution at no further risk to himself. A coroner's inspection of the wound George had sustained found no grievous injury, certainly none that would impede mobility. The jury, which may well have contained acquaintances of the Northways, primed and possibly paid off, decided that the men should fight at the next assizes in Worcester the following month. A resolution which was not uncommon, especially in cases where there are no witnesses, nor a confession to a particular crime, a trial by combat referred to in Old English as a wager of battle. These were based on earlier Germanic and Viking laws known as Holmgang, home being Heaven or Valhalla, which dealt with, among other things, that most dear to the masculine medieval psyche, a man's honour and reputation, a purview for which most were willing to pay the ultimate price to preserve. They would take place within a judicial list, an 18 metre wide square enclosure, forming an oversized medieval combat ring, kept expressly for the purposes of settling disputes. Duels such as this would begin well before noon and could last most of the day, until either one of them was dead or had yielded to his opponent. To ensure no supernatural shenanigans, oaths against the use of witchcraft or sorcery would be taken by both men, with magistrates and clergy in attendance. Each combatant could then be clad in rudimentary leather armour and equipped with clubs, knives or quarterstaves, roughly hewn sticks furnished with sharp iron tips. With the excitable murmuration of a gathering crowd, on Thursday the 5th of August 1221, at Kingsmead, each man took their positions on the field and prepared themselves for the signal. Upon which, a brief period of circular trepidation was broken by the first of many metallic swipes, quickly escalating into a full-on brawl, dispensing the roughest form of justice in a spray of blood, sweat and teeth. Although he put up a valiant effort, at some point, battered, bruised and possibly semi-conscious, Thomas was subdued. A heavy smack to the face had thrown him to the ground, ejecting most of his right eye in the process. And, being unable to continue, our hero was forced to cry craven. For having lost the wager by invoking the odious rule of the duel, guilt had been divinely assured, but his grisly ordeal was far from over. Stripped almost completely naked and the spoils passed to his rival, Thomas was now at the king's mercy, a power his majesty delegated to the attending justices. It was customary for newly convicted felons to be strung-armed to the nearest gibbet and hanged, but, being in good spirits, the assembled tribunal settled upon the more compassionate sentence 
of blinding and castration to be carried out by members of George's family. With justice served, their lordships retired, leaving a handful of underlings to preside over its gruesome enactment. Much of the crowd remained, eagerly awaiting a bloody crescendo to the morning's proceedings. <coughs> Held down by some of the burliest blokes in town, one sharp tug plucked the left eye from its socket with relative ease. His already damaged right eye, however, proved to be quite problematic. The specialist copper blinding tools needed constant resharpening in order to make sure every last aqueous chunk was scraped out of its orbit and onto the ground. With the flick of a blade, his testes were torn from the scrotum and tossed towards a gaggle of bystanders, landing at the feet of a group of boys who kicked them around like hacky sacks whilst teasing a gang of young girls, inadvertently attracting the ravenous attention of some stray dogs, keen to make a meal of them once the lads had finished playing. As the crowd dispersed, Thomas was left crumpled and alone in a pool of blood. A handful of concerned stragglers each took a limb as they tried to slide him further from the salivating hounds, but could only shift his dead weight so far. Another local woman, dismayed at the savage spectacle, bundled his body into a basket and with him in tow, headed back towards town. Disgraced, humiliated, disfigured and severely disabled, his near-lifeless body was deposited outside the gate to St Wolfstons, a newly rebranded monastic hospital which had been founded by the church and managed by a member of the Knights Templar almost two centuries before, located just beyond the city walls to the south of the cathedral. Inside the main building, two rows of flea-ridden, straw-filled beds faced each other across a flagstoned crook timber hall, watched over by a ceiling of hand-painted seraphim, the air thick with the sickly sour odours of unwashed bodies, gangrene and blood, all drifting heavenward on a trail of wood smoke and incense. Refused entry on the grounds of his conviction, Isabel, a kindly lay sister and apothecary, took pity on the broken man and found space for him in a small cupboard near to a doorway onto the street. There he stayed, drifting in and out of consciousness, being nursed in secret for almost nine days, his carer removing scoops of soil and pus from his separated eye sockets, changing bandages and applying poultices to his macerated manhood. Hearing distant singing drifting along the breeze on the morning of the 14th of August 1221, Thomas could make out that it was in fact Vespers for the Holy Mother, the beauty of the harmonious Gregorian chants providing comfort and renewing his will to live. It was the vigil of the Assumption, the commemoration of the day Mary, mother of Jesus, died, but was not subjected to the indignity of physical decay, rather she was assumed 
or absorbed into heaven, immaculate in body and soul. Thomas dozed back into a waking sleep and was at once astonished to behold the glowing vision of the Virgin Mary, the entire building flooded with a supernatural light, shortly followed by the image of St. Wolfston in full regalia, who slowly drifted over to where he lay, made the sign of the cross, and faded away before he was once again plunged back into his lonely darkness. Wolfston had been canonised in 1203 after having appeared in multiple ghostly visions to the Bishop of Hereford, offering his spectral counsel to the troubled pontiff. According to Coleman, his biographer and contemporary, he was the epitome of Christian piety, who rejected all worldly temptations and the luxury his position could afford him, becoming Bishop of Worcester in around 1062. Celibate since adolescence, he had renounced the pleasures of the flesh following a run-in with the devil near his childhood home in Itchington, Warwickshire. A gifted athlete, young Wolfston had wiped the floor with his competition at a local tournament, and in doing so, had come to the amorous awareness of a number of young maidens. One girl became so impassioned and handsy that the teenage theologian was in no doubt there was something altogether Luciferian in her liveness. She was bewitched, and he was having none of it doing whatever he needed to to resist her Thonian charms, throwing himself headfirst into a gorse thicket in lieu of a cold shower. Their paths would apparently cross again much later in life. This time, while praying alone in the cathedral at night, an elderly peasant wandered in, who began to chide him for the lateness of the hour, and, growing increasingly aggressive, challenged him to a fight. Recognising that the man's appearance belied his true, iniquitous identity, Wolfston set about grappling with the figure before it drove its cloven foot through his and vanished in a puff of jet-black smoke. He bore the ulcerated scars of this encounter until the day he died in 1095. Animated by the intensity of the imagery, Thomas immediately recounted the experience to the rest of the household at the top of his lungs, before being distracted back into silence by the searing pain of his injuries. Suddenly, his wounds began to itch with such incredible ferocity that it was all he could do to call out for Isabel, pleading with her to bring water to bathe them and to stop him from scratching. Restless, Thomas turned towards the wall and taking his fingers, prized open his eyelids. There was light. Initially convinced that this ocular aura heralded his ascension to paradise, the strange but nonetheless earthly reality of his condition soon became clear. Blurred shapes quickly pulled into focus, and for the first time in over a week, he beheld his hands. Off in the distance, Thomas could even make out features of the room, patches of crumbling daub, timbers, pewter dishes, and food. Skeptical onlookers, keen to determine the validity of his jubilant assertions, demanded proof, holding up a number of fingers and quizzing him over the identity and coloration of nearby objects. 
Closer inspection of the cavities by some resident monks revealed two distinct but embryonic eyeballs, described as resembling tiny plums, which grew larger and larger with each passing day. Friends of his attested that they looked quite different to the eyes he'd had before, but why wouldn't they? These were grown from miraculous seed. Speaking of which, this supernatural encounter had also apparently overhauled the Eldersfield family jewels, although this would need to be verified by a bishop. At this point, it might be prudent to mention that during this time, Worcester Cathedral was undergoing a vast redevelopment programme, having almost been totally destroyed by fire 20 years before. Work was in its final stages, and preparations were being made for the building's reconsecration, like a ribbon-cutting ceremony, but with more priests. An ungodly amount of money had been spent on Wolfston's recently renovated shrine, a resplendent Gothic reliquary, which was at that time located on the northern side of the high altar within the cathedral, desecrated a few centuries later when King Henry VIII dissolved the monastery there in 1538. What the clerical conclave needed was a draw, something to bring in the punters and their cash. How fortuitous, then, that Worcester should have been the scene of a miracle, and one at the reverend hands of its resident saint. news of Thomas's heavenly healing travelled fast and fell upon the ears of Benedict of St. Seton, Bishop of Rochester in Kent, 150 miles or three days ride away. Without a moment's hesitation, his grace gathered an entourage and headed out to take a look for himself, arriving many hours later as if from the ends of the earth. Once settled and refreshed in their guest apartments, it was time to venture over to the hospital and substantiate the once blind man's claims. Claims which had quickly become the talk of almost every town in England. They found Thomas repose in his bunk, now within the body of the main building, his newfound celebrity allowing for an upgrade in accommodation. Upon entering, it was evident that stories of regenerated retinas were true. His eyes now fully redeveloped, albeit a different shade to their original. Alert and conversational, the events of the past few days had, if nothing else, lifted Thomas's dour spirits. Benedict was, though, yet to be totally convinced. Initially, he bade his own diffident chaplain to examine Thomas's genitals, who, blushing, duly knelt down before extending a reticent hand. It all felt totally normal. The news of this brought tears of joy to the bishop's eyes, and keen that he might witness the fruits of a miracle for himself, proceeded to cup the corrected cullions. Satisfied that their journey had not been in vain, and still visibly moved by the experience, the men left and returned to their lodgings. Some time later, and having provided an external ecumenical rubber stamp on their business plan, Bishop Benedict soon departed for Rochester, leaving the clerics of Worcester to cash in. Wheeled out on high days and holidays, Thomas apparently spent the rest of his life at the nearby monastery, with room and board provided in exchange for becoming a live-in mascot for the church, 
a mortal reminder of Wolfston's saintly powers. It is, though, extremely unlikely that anyone who endured Thomas's fate during the Middle Ages would have survived for more than a couple of days. Shock, sepsis and extensive blood loss would each have been enough to finish him off. Admittedly, there's only so much you can do with a herbal poultice given the situation. Medieval medicine just wasn't up to the challenge. Another conspiratorial possibility put forward by modern scholars is much more intriguing and probably closer to the mark. The miracle was manufactured. Consider, if you will, an alternative storyline. The real Thomas of Eldersfield appears in Worcester and takes part in the duel as chronicled. He is severely injured in the course of the fight and then mutilated at the behest of the law. Sympathetic townsfolk deliver him to the hospital where he is surreptitiously, albeit publicly, admitted. However, succumbing to his injuries, Thomas dies, and with the clergy spotting an opportunity to capitalise on the original's misfortune, the body is disposed of in secret, and a convincing doppelganger sought. An unknown man, very similar in age and appearance, is found, and nine days later, on one of the holiest days in the Catholic calendar, the miraculously restored imposter is presented as the prestige of the trick. This new doubtful Thomas exchanges his exultant silence for a life of relative luxury and celebrity, while pilgrimatic queues form around the block. Here endeth the strange tale of Thomas of Eldersfield, and for your attention I give thanks. Miracle or Mafia, I'll leave you to decide. Those parts in favour thou hast found, upon the Lord presides. My words were wrought in duty's care, a scholar's cap now donning. That which remains in favour's stead, the fault of mine unconning. World Salad is written, recorded and produced by me, Chris Hudson. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to support World Salad, please consider leaving a rating or review wherever you listen, following the show on Instagram at world underscore underscore salad and sharing it with your nearest and dearest.